Chris, did you put that set together or did Kobe? Chris did. Chris put the set together today. I love, um, you know, a lot of you guys know this, but I don't call Chris or Kobe or whoever's leading worship and say, hey, this is the passage I'm doing, this is the theme I'm on. Um, but I love how, uh, because those guys are abiding in Christ as they're doing that, God gives them the same message uh, as us. Man, thank you for that today, Chris. It was a great primer for our hearts. Um, just want to point out the elephant in the room. It's fall break, and you don't realize how many teachers we have until they get a four or five day weekend and they escape. And I'm, I'm appreciative that they are able to do that. We do have a few diehard, <clears throat> excuse me, diehard teachers that are still in the room. We'll point out David and Julie over here. Yes. Who else we got? And Stephen Smith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, he's hiding back there. I couldn't see him. You're, you got the same color shirt on as a chair, man. It's not my fault. That's all I'm saying. Camouflage. He's from Grant Parish. You can't help it. All right. So we're going to pick up this week where we left off last week. Uh, last week, we, we looked at, at um, Exodus chapter 32, which I've, I'm kind of discovering is one of my favorite passages. Mostly because I identify with Aaron so much, and I shared it with you guys last week. I'm going to go shut that door real quick, because that is going to distract the heck out of me. Somebody's pinching that baby. I know it. That's going to be awesome on the recording. <laughs> Just cut that out, Jake. So, Exodus 32, I, I really like this passage because I identify with Aaron so much. I shared with you guys last week, uh, it's hilarious to me that, you know, that you, if you weren't here last week, it's the story of when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments in written form, uh, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes down from the mountain, he finds that Aaron, who he left in charge, has created a golden calf uh, that they were worshiping. Uh, which breaks, uh, in the way it happens, it breaks the first three commandments that Israel, along with Aaron and Moses, had just agreed uh, to the, the terms of this covenant that God is setting forth. And, and Aaron's response to that when Moses questions, obviously, what are you doing? He's like, I, I don't know, I just threw the gold in there and this calf came out. Um, I can identify with that story. That was Will as a child. If, if you have uh, any questions about that later, we can have some great conversations. You'll laugh a lot, I promise. So as we looked at, at chapter 32 last week, we see that Israel, again, fails to keep the covenant with God. Um, Moses goes up on the mountain, he comes down, you know, and, and he sees this predicament that they're in. God revealed last week how important it is for us to pursue him daily, that if Aaron, in the midst of, of being pressured by all of Israel to make this calf, if he would have just taken a moment to spend with God, to ask God, um, and to, to meet with the other elders that God had put around him, if he would have done that, I think that he would have made a different decision. But instead of doing that, he just made an a, a on-the-spot decision, didn't consult anyone, especially God, and then we see the results of that. So we talked about for us how important it is that we daily pursue the Lord, abide in Him, and let that be the source of our decision-making, that it's not about um, any wisdom or experience that I have outside of the Lord, but it's what the Lord is doing in me in that moment that, that needs to inform that. Uh, we touched briefly on, on the issue that God's calling someone to leadership doesn't vaccinate them from sin. Uh, we know that Aaron was, was called into that leader posi leadership position by God. We see that early in Exodus. But just because God called him to leadership doesn't mean that, that sin is no longer a, an issue for him. It is for all of us. And so we need to pray intentionally for those that God puts in leadership above us, whether that's here at church or where we work or in our lives. We need to pray for those people. We see that God sees Israel's sin and he wants to wipe them out. Like that's his response to Moses is, I'm just going to kill all of them and we'll start over with you. And of course we see that Moses intercedes 
on Israel's behalf, reminds God of the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, and then God relents and says, okay, I will forgive them, okay? And so we're going to pick up there today, um, and we're going we're to see a, a really interesting um, response that Moses brings to God. So let's pick up today in 32. We're going to read verses 30 through 35, um, and then we're going to kind of dig into these things. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague to the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So Moses begins again. He goes back before God and he, and he confronts the sin that is before them. And he makes it known to Israel and also to God that God is aware of everything that's just happened. A lot of times we'll have a sin in our life, we kind of try to hide it in the back and think that maybe God won't see that if we don't talk about it out loud. But God sees all those things. And Moses is pointing that out. And then he goes to God and he offers to God on their behalf. He goes to beg God for their forgiveness. Okay, When he goes back on the mountain, he says a very peculiar thing. And I, I slowed down in reading it to let it grab your attention. But it says this in verse 32. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Do you see what Moses is doing there? Do you see what he's asking God? He's asking God to forgive them, but if God won't, he's asking God to take him out too. Moses is asking God to let him be an atonement for their sins. And so I have to ask myself, and I want you to ask yourself, what could possibly have motivated Moses to make that kind of an offer? What would motivate a person to give up their life for so many others? Some say that in this passage that Moses isn't offering himself. He's just saying that if God's going to take them out, take him out as well. That he doesn't want to live in a world where they aren't. Even if that's the case, at the very least, we see that Moses is aligning himself with their sin and asking God to dole out to him the same punishment that he's going to give to Israel. Moses didn't sin. He's on the mountain with God when this happens. He didn't deserve that punishment, but he's aligning himself. Moses had no part in their sin. Yet, he asked God to give them the punishment. So point number one I want to make today is that Moses loved Israel enough to offer his life for theirs. We've talked about a lot since we've studied the book of Exodus that in the beginning after Adam and Eve first sinned that all of God's people are looking forward to the new Adam. They're looking for the person that can crush the serpent's head, right? And they're thinking perhaps maybe this is Moses, but we know and Moses knew that he is not the new Adam because of the sin in his life. But that's what Israel's looking towards. So why would Moses do this? If Moses knows he's not the new Adam, why would he offer himself? Look at what Paul says about this same idea in Romans chapter 8 and 9. We're going to see a very similar thing happen. Paul begins in, in chapter 8, or he's in chapter 8. We're going to pick that up just so we can get a context for what he's saying 
in the beginning of chapter 9, but he's talking about God's love. And it's a passage that we're familiar with. Look at, with me at Romans 8, 31 through 37. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is describing this incredible love that God has for his people. And he reveals that through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And we know how powerful these words are because when we're going through times that are really difficult, we remind ourselves of these truths. We preach this message to ourselves again and again to say, it's okay. In the middle of what's going on in my life, in the middle of this stress, I know that Christ is able to do all things through me, right? He is able to be more than a conqueror to us. Look at what Paul goes on to say and the value that he gives to that love of God. In Romans 9 verses 1 through 3, it says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accused and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In verse 1 and 2, Paul is trying to internalize. He's asking God, why do I feel the way that I feel? My heart is aching. It's breaking for these people. The sorrow is so great that he is willing to be cut off from Christ so that his brothers in Christ might know him. Paul is saying the same thing in essence that Moses is. Moses knows the value of being in a relationship with God because he's been there. Paul also, since his conversion, understands the truth of God's love. And both of them are in anguish because their brothers and sisters have not yet had that experience. He goes on to say in verse 4 through 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, it, it is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. What Paul is saying is that his heart is breaking because the people to whom Christ has been promised and has been brought, they have completely missed it. Remember, Paul is living in a time after Christ's death. And if you remember before his conversion, he is going about persecuting and killing those who claim the name of Christ. But now, because he's experienced the Holy Spirit, his heart is breaking for those who have not had that same experience. Moses' heart is breaking because he sees the division that is happening between Israel and God. Paul finishes this thought in the beginning of chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's despair and prayer to God is for them. Or excuse me, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
For I bear them witness, and they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is telling the church in Rome that God has done all of the work. He's performed miracle after miracle through Jesus, and Israel still has not seen Jesus for who he is. He and Moses, Paul and Moses, share this same desire to give up themselves so that the people in their lives might truly know God. My fear is that we too as the church, like so many others who have witnessed the works of God, are still floundering in this weird world of knowing God's grace, but still trying to live under the law. We understand that God forgives us, but we're still trying to use performance as a basis for our righteousness before God. My heart is in anguish because I still see some of my brothers and sisters seeking the things of this world in hopes of finding their purpose and fulfillment in those things. Instead of asking God to reveal His purposes, we fight God's call as if it was some terrible task. We put the things that we think will bring us fulfillment before the very thing that actually can. Do you remember what kind of man Moses was when we began the book of Exodus? Why did he flee Egypt in the first place? He fled Egypt because he killed a man, right? He sees an injustice happening. He wants to do something about it, but instead of going to God or going to a proper authority, he takes the authority upon himself as judge and jury and, and, and executor, and he kills the man that is attacking the Israelites. He tried to bring about justice under his own power instead of bringing it to God. Remember again the kind of man that Paul was before his conversion. He sought out to imprison and to murder believers of Jesus because he was making an application of the law that was not what God intended when he gave the law. Paul, too, tried to bring about justice under his own authority. So what changed both of these men? What made the difference? What brought them from being murderers and slanderers to men who were so in love with God that they were willing to give up their own lives for the sake of others. An encounter with a holy and loving God. That's what made the difference. Experiencing God's love changes all that we previously thought was important. God gives us a new perspective on everything. Both of them, in response to their experience with God, are walking with God and ministering to His people. The love they felt and knew from God drove them to love in dramatic ways. So point number two is, we cannot set people free that we do not love. We've been talking about for a year that God is calling us to be a people that would join Him to set people free, and we cannot set people free that we do not love. If we jump back to Moses and his request on behalf of Israel for just a moment, if Moses can't atone for their sins, what good did it do for him to offer it? If Israel knows, if Moses knows, and God knows that that is not a proper atonement because of the sin in Moses' life, Moses's life, why did he offer it, and why is it important? Imagine for a moment if someone offers themselves up for you. Imagine if you have a friend or a group of people 
who write a blank check and said, whatever you need in your life, you call me and I'll handle it. What does that look like? What does that feel like? I can tell you in my life that when my wife was getting ready to have her first chemo treatment and I'm trying to figure out what to do with my five kids so that I can go and be with her to be her emotional support and I'm having trouble doing that and some dear friends of mine who have three little bitty babies say, let me take your five kids for the day and I'll do it. They gave up themselves for us. And it it may seem like just babysitting, but if you've ever had eight children in your house, you know that it's bigger than that, right? What they did for us was deeply unselfish and loving. It's probably one of the most um, meaningful expressions of love that I have ever experienced in the church. Because in that moment, they said, the things that you are struggling with are far more important and bigger than anything that we possibly have. So let me take some of your burden. Let me take your kids for the day and let me deal with them so that you can do what you need to do. Apply that to your own lives. Think about times when people have offered themselves up for you. If there's any doubt in Israel's mind about the commitment that Moses had for them, it should have been erased at this point. If Israel in any way doubted that Moses wasn't for them, that should have gone away. As I was praying and reading through this this week, God brought me to John chapter 15, which as a church in the past we've spent a lot at. But I want to look at a few verses. Let's start with verse 13 today. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. God is calling us to love like he loves and to lay down our lives for one another. Look, this is not just rhetoric. This is not just words that we say because it sounds good. One of my favorite hymns growing up, I don't know if they did it in the Baptist church a lot, but we did in the Methodist church. It was, um, I don't even remember the title of it, but the words were, they will know we are Christians by our love. Y'all familiar with that one? Okay, good. If we're honest and, and we think about where the church is today, People don't know we're Christians by our love. They know we're Christians by our picket signs, by the stickers on our car, by the things we say on social media, but often it is not because of our love. Listen, I know that this is a process, that, but the process must be gone through. We must, as a people, move beyond ourselves. You remember how reluctant Moses was to even accept his assignment to go and deliver Israel? Do you remember? Flip back to Exodus 4.13. He straight up tells God to find someone else. It says, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. I don't want to do it. This is after God goes through all the stuff with the staff and the snake and God proving that this is him. Moses is standing before a burning bush. Remember that? And he's holding the staff and he's like, God, I can't do it. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And he's like, how do I know? He's like, throw the stick on the ground, turns into a snake, he picks it up. Moses has been through all of that. He is fully aware. He has had experiences in that moment that God will be the one to do the work. He just needs a willing vessel. And Moses says, find somebody else. We are no better. God is offering us opportunities to love people and we aren't taking those opportunities. We are still asking God 
to send someone else. Listen, I know that's a bold statement, and I know there's a lot that I don't know about each of your lives. But until we have made our relationship with Jesus our absolute priority, we are in need of the Holy Spirit's to will us to change. We all need change. All of us. We all need it because none of us are perfect and we won't be until we die and go to heaven. God has time and time again shown this body His faithfulness. When we had debt that we could never hope to pay off, God did it. When we had illnesses that all the doctors said, there's nothing we can do about it, God did it. God has shown himself faithful. Yet we keep putting other things in priority above him. So I want you to ask yourself this week, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life and say, what is it in my life that keeps taking priority over God? Listen, God's call to join him to set people free is not lanyap. If you're not from Louisiana, you may not be familiar with that term. Lanyap is the extra. God's call to join him to set people free. God's call for us to speak about the truth about who God is is not something that is added onto your salvation. They are one and the same. They are homogenized. They exist together and you cannot separate them from one another. We can try in our minds to separate those two things, but God's call for us to set people free is a part of who we are. We need God to do a work in us to show us how truly blessed we are, and how much He loves us. We take for granted the amazing work that God has already done in our lives. So what did it for Moses? What changed his heart towards his people? An experience with God. All of them. How has God changed your heart towards people? Do you love people differently today than you did a year ago? Moses walked with the Lord, and he did what God told him to do. And in John chapter 15, verses 14, the very next verse, it says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It cannot be made more simple than that. Moses had a heart change because he walked with God, and in obedience, he became more like God. God took Moses from being an arrogant, prideful prince to a humble shepherd, into a deliverer, and to the leader of a nation that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is an evolution that we see happening in the life of Moses. And God wants to do that same kind of work in my life and in yours. I can thankfully say I am a different person than I was a decade ago. And that is a really good thing. Ask anyone. I'm not saying this to shame or guilt anyone into doing anything. That is never our motivation. If you're walking in obedience to what the Holy Spirit is doing and you don't feel convicted about anything right now, fantastic. But if in your heart, if you know that the Holy Spirit is pointing out something that you have put in priority above Him, let the Holy Spirit deal with that. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life. What I am trying to do is to tell you that if you're not walking with God, you have no idea what you're missing. It's the best thing. When we allow God to move us beyond ourselves and begin to truly love others, we get 
addicted to it. It is literally the best thing ever. I want to share a story with you. Two weeks ago, our babysitter um, was in a car wreck. She wasn't able to come. She's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, but Bethany had to stay home with the kids. Um, and, and so I, I said, why don't, why don't I stay home with the kids? You're the youth pastor, and you go do youth ministry. She's like, no, you need to ref the games. Like, when I'm there on Wednesday night, that's literally all I do is I ref games, okay? And that has a very important place in that ministry because if, if, if I'm not managing those relationships on the court, things get out of hand really quickly. But she wasn't there, and Bethany has this plethora of very specific things that she handles on Wednesday night. And when she's not there, they don't get handled, and things kind of begin to, to fray, right? And so I'm trying to ref the games. We had two little ones that had gotten in an argument. Now a parent's here. I'm trying to deal with that at the same time, but I'm also trying to ref the game. I missed some calls. The kids on the court are getting mad because I missed the calls. They feel like I'm not giving them their attention, and I just kind of fell apart. I was like, guys, this is not the most important thing going on on the court today. I mean, in this building tonight. You are not the most important thing tonight. Well, they get mad, and they left and went home. Well, I felt very justified in my actions because I was right, right? I'm on the way home. I call Bethany. Oh, Lord, I got an earful, okay? Very quick to point out that I wasn't right, but I was trying to do all the things, right? I was trying to get it all done. And so now I'm worried. I'm worried that I have screwed up these relationships and that, and that I can't fix it. And now I've messed up ministry for her in this community, and I can't fix it. And so this Wednesday night, we show up, and Kyle was in all of that last week. And we show up, and it's like 7 o'clock. It starts at 6.30, and there's like nothing but elementary kids there. And Kyle's like laughing at me, and I'm laughing at me. But I'm really inside going, oh, man, I screwed this up. Well, I open the side door of the gym because it lets more light in. And I see like literally it looks like a parade of teenagers coming across the bridge over here. And as they come through the back, I always, my, kind of my habit is to greet them and give them each a hug as they come in the door. And one of the young men, he's 15 years old, he's bigger than I am. Literally, this is the one that I had the biggest disagreement with, who was the most upset with me, who's the kind of the pack leader. And when he left, everyone followed him. He literally runs and jumps like this onto me. A 15-year-old young man, okay? That doesn't happen, right? Like, I've never met a 15-year-old that wants to jump on another man. Like, and hug him. Okay? But here's, here's what happened. Look, I screwed up. But God did a work anyway. What happened is, is that God is incredible and He has given evidence in that moment that what He has been telling us to do in this community is working. He is working even when I screw up. If we go on in John chapter 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Listen, God is going to do all the work. Stop listening to and believing the lie that you are allowing to take priority in your life. Those things that, are, that, that you don't believe the lie. Let me say that again. Stop listening. Stop believing to the lie that the things that you're allowing to take priority in your life are going to bring you fulfillment and purpose because they will not. 
Listen, there's no need to be nervous about how or why or when God is going to do the impossible thing that he has tasked you with because he is going to do it. Literally, all you have to do is show up and God will do the work. When you see someone in need, you ask God for whatever it is that that person's going to need and God will do it. When you are abiding in Christ, you're going to see a need, the Holy Spirit's going to point it out, and you're going to say to God, God, help me to figure out how to take care of that need, and God will provide everything that's necessary to do it. And all you had to do was be there. If we submit ourselves to God's will, allow Him to work in our lives, lives are going to be radically changed by the love of the Father, not by our good works. I'll tell you what else is going to happen. One day... You're going to be just walking along with Jesus, minding your old business. And you're going to see a need, and you're going to offer your life up for someone else's. And it will be the most joyous experience you have ever had. I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I have every intention over the next couple of months to tug at your heartstrings. I'm telling you it's coming. Be prepared. Not because I want to coerce you or manipulate you. But my goal is, going to tell you, is to tell you stories that will make you cry like a baby. Like, I'm just going to be blank with you. That's what I want to happen. And the reason is because I want to give you a taste of the depth of love that God has for his people. God wants us to see that. He wants us to be a part of that. And just like God shows mercy to Israel, God is going to show us mercy. The last point I want to make today is that nothing is over until God says it's over. And I know that that's like the most generic point to a sermon ever, okay? But I wanted to say it that way on purpose because the enemy is going to try to convince you that it's too late. He's going to try to convince you that you can't fix it. And he's right. But God can. Let's go back to Exodus for a moment. Verse 34. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Listen, even in our sin, God still loves us and God still keeps his word. Period. It does not mean that we won't have to live with the consequences of our sin and our disobedience. We will. But God will continue to do the work that he's called you to. Even in spite of their egregious sin, God is still going to keep his word that he spoke to Abraham so many years ago. The same is true for us. God has called us to be a church that sets people free. We have all found ourselves to be lacking, but God is still going to make us a church that he has called us to be. But in order to be that church, we must be willing to sacrifice as the Holy Spirit leads us to. Listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be Israel and that God has to kill off this generation and then do the work through our children. I'd much rather be part of the work now. We have to be willing to sacrifice as the Holy Spirit leads. As I was writing all this Friday night, uh, Russ sent me an article that he wrote last year. And in this article, he uses the example of Aaron and the work that God does in Aaron's life in spite of Aaron making the calf. I want to read this to you. It'll be up on the screen, and then I want to make some application from it. Russ said this in the article. I just finished writing several entries for an expository dictionary. I've been mulling over one entry for several days now. The Hebrew word eigel 
means calf or young bull. It's the word used for golden calf that Aaron crafted in Exodus and later for the golden calves that Jeroboam sets up in 1 Kings. The eagle is a clean animal and therefore suitable for sacrifice. But the only time it is mentioned in a sacrificial context is in Leviticus 9, which describes Aaron's and his son's inauguration into the priesthood. The Lord commanded Aaron to offer an idol as a sin offering for himself. That's the only time the term idol is used to refer to a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament. What was it like for Aaron? What was he thinking and how did it feel? This article that Russ wrote is about spiritual discipline, but as I'm reading it, God spoke through this about what this means for us to follow him. Russ asked the question at the end, and I don't know about you, but those prompted my heart. What does it feel like to be Aaron? What is he thinking? God was very specific with the sacrifice that he required of Aaron. The very thing that Aaron made to replace God, God made him sacrifice. You know God's calling him on the carpet, right? To be that specific. What is God speaking for you to change in priority in your life? Because whatever that thing is, God's asking you to give it up. To sacrifice it. Listen, God is speaking. He is speaking to us as His church. He's highlighting these things because He wants to see us experience His joy as we obey Him. He may be telling you, as he did Aaron, to give up that thing that's drawing you away from his presence. I have no idea what that thing is for you, but you probably know. And from my own experiences, that giving it up will be the best thing for you. It will be uh, an ultimate way of experiencing God's joy. It's going to bring you closer to God than you ever thought possible. God isn't and never will be done with us. He's going to continue to stretch and grow us until we die. This process, it never stops. And it doesn't stop because we'll never be perfect. And as long as we're not perfect, God is going to continue to love us and work us to being like Him. He's not going to give up on us. It's what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship with God. Until we are perfect like God, He's going to keep working us over and over. And we're going to keep sacrificing. And we're going to get to keep telling these stories about the amazing thing that God's doing in our lives as a result of our obedience. Listen, if your desire in life is to do something that matters, which I think all of you would agree with, if you think back and you, and you say, when I die, I want to look back on my life and say that I did something that was important, I think everyone in this room would say, yes, I want to be a part of that, right? The most important thing that we can do is to learn to abide in Christ. There is no better use of a life than that. I love how this morning I was going through my daily devotions, and this is what I want to close with. It's reference to Psalm 90, 12. It says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God longs to teach us to use our days wisely. He longs to give us a heart of wisdom that we might center our lives around meeting with Him. You have God Himself dwelling within you, ready to guide you into a lifestyle of purposeful living. Choose today to open your heart and mind and mind to the teacher, the very Spirit of God, and live according to His will. May you find peace, joy, and purpose in the ways in which you invest your time. Let's pray.
God, it is our desire. It is our longing to know you. God, I know that, that every person in this room wants you to be happy with them. God, I ask that you would just continue to reveal to us that the way that happens is just by us submitting to you, that you are happy with us right where we are, but you desire better for us. You desire for us to know you. God, I ask that you would speak truth into our lives that would, would help to tear out the parts that we're replacing you with. That we would sacrifice those things joyfully for your sake and for the sake of the people that you have put in our lives. God, there are people all around us as we walk through every day that desperately need you. So God, I ask that you would show us those people. Help us to feel the way you feel towards those people. Help us to love those people the way that you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.